FinTech Hunting is hosted by Michael Hammett, JD, CMT, keynote speaker, author, and founder and president of Next Level Advisors. Join Michael as he seeks out tech visionaries, leading lenders, trailblazing executives, and other financial influencers to bring you actionable insights and lead generation tactics, all centered around industry greatness and success. Welcome to another episode of FinTech Hunting. Could not be more excited about our next guest. Fascinating story, and I know you guys are in for a treat. Please help me welcome Julian Sato. He is the Chief Employee Ambassador. He's a business strategist. Julian, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it is great to have you. And how I want to kick this off is... I think it's important as we talk financial services, and we'll get into that in a few minutes, there's still a number of executives who really don't embrace social media. So I thought maybe you could start off by telling everyone and our listeners how you and I met. Well, we met on social media. So it was through LinkedIn. It was through uh, watching your posts, you watching mine. Um, we found some value in each other's uh, posts. We started commenting on things. and through there and through associations like uh, Raquel, we, we started, we connected. I reached out to you and here we are today. So I think social media is extremely important. You never know what it can bring. Absolutely, and I couldn't agree more. I think it, it helps foster and builds relationships. And like you said, it's about connecting, commenting on your uh, posts, you commenting on some of mine, us having mutual contacts and that relationship is formed. But most of the time I like to get right into, let's talk financial services in the industry, um, but I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna date myself a little, I'm kind of feeling in a little bit of a funky Comedina mode, and I was hoping <laughs> you could tell our listeners a little bit about your background before you got in the mortgage industry. That is so funny, you said funky Comedina. So yeah, so a lot of people know from my seminars that I, I did not start, I would have never guessed I end up in financial industry, but I started in Hollywood. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, uh, in the heart of entertainment. So I grew up with uh, Marvin Gaye, just come to my house as a kid. Um, you know, I grew up uh, in the area of, you know, why go to school when you could be famous? So uh, entertainment was the thing. I was a soul train dancer. I was I became a talent agent, had a record deal. Uh, I worked in Hollywood as a, uh, a talent agent, worked with J-Lo and um, Bill Bellamy and a few others, several people you still see today. And then um, worked with Madonna, Prince, and then from there, I, my cousin is a rapper. Uh, way before all that, I worked with those people. He got famous in the 80s. I, I worked with him, and it, it, as you know, Funky Comedina, Wild Thing, Tone Loke. Um, so I got to see the world in a whole different way. And then stepping into the financial world was a complete culture shock. So um, I would say that was one of the things that just hit me in the face like a brick. It's like the differences in mentality, but yet the emotions are the same, if that makes sense. It certainly does. So let's talk a little bit about that upbringing. You know, uh, according to society, most people is, would have said, boy, super successful. Why would you ever leave, you know, Hollywood? Why would you leave the success? Tell people a little bit about what you were doing uh, as a talent agent, some of the successes you had, and then what drove you to that decision to leave the industry and start anew. Well, you know, to be honest with you, Michael, no one's ever really asked me that question in all the podcasts and things I've done and the business level. And I appreciate you asking that question because that is really the heart of my business 
is focusing on the internal subconscious. And when I got into the business of entertainment, you know, I grew up in it. So I was didn't appreciate it because it fell in my lap. My Tony being or Tony Loke, I should say, being becoming famous, uh, put me in a position where when we got back, I was offered a job as a talent agent. So I was casting dancers for concerts and video, like music videos. They were getting very popular at the time. So I was looking for talent. I was finding the best talent that represented the person that was uh, the star, made sure they didn't oversaddle them, but also help them look good. So I was a casting director. I went around finding talent. So it was emotionally, it wasn't work for me. It was almost like a, a guilt of play. And, you know, in the entertainment industry, a, a lot of expressive creative people have a lot of insecurities based off of childhood or, or you know, some things that dysfunctions that happen in their life. And they use artistic expression to kind of deal with it, but they never really handled the emotion. And that was me. I didn't handle my emotion uh, very well. So I, it was a dysfunctional, even successful experience, but very dysfunctional to say the least. So um, I got out of it, actually, it was ironic. I got out of it because the people that I was associating with through marriage, marriage counseling, prior pre-marriage counseling, they were financial advisors, life insurance agents, and they saw my world as being not a conducive relationship uh, for marriage. It wasn't something that was positive for marriage. And I didn't have father figure growing up. So I literally just was following their lead. And I went into life insurance sales, Michael. That's the first thing I did life insurance and um, <laughs> talking about a culture shock. Uh, I, cause I, I was already just going to say that that is quite different coming from Hollywood <laughs> and now you're selling life insurance, but continue with yeah. that. I think it's very fascinating and it helps tells the story of how you got into mortgage. Right. So, you know, I, I didn't say this part, but I already left the talent industry as a talent agent and went into kickboxing because I was a fighter as a young man through some dysfunctions of growing up in East LA I ended up getting into kickboxing to protect myself and to kind of help myself navigate the streets. And um, so when boxing got popular, I was asked to help with Billy Blank and Kaibo and I ended up developing my own boxing program and got very famous in that, which was still part of entertainment. I started training celebrities, doing some fight coordinating for movies. So I was still in the entertainment world. And so that's where the, 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 the my counselors saw me at, at the time and my, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife still, um, but when I got into life insurance sales, it literally, I, I lost who I was. I didn't know who I was anymore. My identity was surrounded by my my business and by the attention that I was getting from the people that I associated with. My ego was very high. I had a business I really didn't work at. It kind of just evolved quickly and very easily. Um, and when I got into life insurance sales, I wasn't used to the rejection, not just from my, my, my uh, clients, but my family and the associations of celebrities. And I, you know, I couldn't get J-Lo to call me back, you know, for calling Jennifer Lopez and go, hey, I want to talk to you about some life insurance. I need you to buy some. She was like, I got nothing to say to you. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, losing all your friends puts you in a culture shock. But uh, at my lowest low, at a point where I was just feeling like I'd rather die, um, I met Jim Rohn by, by default because I was pretty successful in sales still through some associations and, and uh, my ability to get into the doors with some of these uh, people and sell some insurance and products. Um, and Jim Rohn was, uh, he met me and he, he looked right at me and he goes, are you okay? And I go, yeah, I'm okay. He goes, no, you're not okay. <laughs> so he was already friends with my stepfather and a few people I knew. So he, he took me under his wing and had some conversations with me and he directed me into the mind space. He really got me focusing on really NLP. He really started challenging the words I was saying to him. And he made me aware of what I was saying to myself when I was talking to him. And so 
he really directed me into like I would really call you call the behavioral coaching and neuroscience and NLP that I've been studying for the last 25 years. Fantastic. So you've made that 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 transition. You're in Hollywood. You have all of the trappings of what society says is successful. You then transition to this career. You start making a more conscious, intentional efforts of what you want to do. You realize that people that you thought were your friends really didn't want to have anything to do with you, or at least with what you were selling from a life insurance. How did you then get into the mortgage space? And let's let's dive into that a little bit. Yeah, mortgage was, you know, it was booming. Um, I was, you know, Jim Rohn introduced me to several people. I started speaking at conferences and doing many segments, if you will, breakout sessions for him. And what happened was Raytheon hired me to contract. So I ended up contracting with Raytheon and they had a contracting services uh, that really focused on other businesses outside of military and, and uh, defense uh, engineering. So I ended up working with uh, mortgage companies. That was a GE Home Finance was my first call center. I ended up working with with mortgage. Um, and that was my, that put me on the path of mortgage, really. And then I went from there to working with uh, a Mortgage Lenders Network, which is no longer with us. It's really a, a interesting company. But it was during the subprime days. Uh, when the crash came, uh, USAA knew me. I was actually speaking already. So they brought me in. And I worked as a frontline manager for them for many years, working with processing and sales developing training and developing uh, programs for leadership. At the same time, I continued my studies and focusing on the mind and how it works and the behaviors of psychology, if you will, which really isn't a part of the mortgage industry, which I need to say, that, and I think it needs to be more of it. And um, one of the things that I really notice about mortgage is that it's not very savvy on the human nature. It's focused heavily on product and closing loans, but the interaction between each other is almost like instinctively uh, naive when it comes to just how to behave to get the best results. It's just we focus on the productivity and the and, our, and really that's it. So I've saw that and that's what I've been focusing on since I've been in mortgage. But that's been how that's how I got into it was through Raytheon. Excellent. So so let's delve into that a little bit. I think so many times you know I've been in the mortgage space now for 20 plus years. And I think for so many years of it, it's been very transaction focused, like you said, very product focused. Um, but what, I, what I'm seeing, at least what I'm encouraged by during this pandemic, during some of the challenges, I think people are realizing that it's more about the relationship than just the transaction. People are realizing and lenders are realizing that most prospective borrowers are probably going to get seven to 11 to 12 loans throughout the course of their life that if you don't focus on the relationship and you only focus on the transaction, you may get the first one, you might get the second one, but you're probably not gonna get any additional business because you haven't developed that relationship. So talk to me a little bit about some of the things that you see that are very effective at building those relationships and, and really kind of changing the mindset that people have towards, you know, working with prospective borrowers in our industry. Sure. I mean, here's a here's a challenge. I mean, and I learned this from Jim Rohn. I have to give him credit because he always said you have to work harder on yourself than you do on your business. That is the key to success. It has nothing to do with your product, has nothing to do with your brand, has nothing to do with your the name of the company, how many loans you've closed. It's you. It's the people pick up energetic feelings about you and they mirror that by instinct people mirror their environment very quickly it's almost like um 
I, I know some several salespeople that will never go to another restaurant because of one bad experience. And it was based off of the waiter that might have spilled food on their shirt or did or their food was, you know, the wrong order, cold food, whatever it might be. But that waiter is really a, is not a vested interest in the business. They're working there to make a paycheck, but they're probably not there anymore. And if you drive by that place, you might say, I'll never go back to that place ever again. And it's because of that waiter, not because of the business. You know, so it's the, we respond to people more than anything. And if we can figure out not to think about our rates, not to think about our product when we're meeting people and just be in, invested in the person and actually listen to things that aren't said and pay attention to body language and, and vibes and get really engrossed in being truly genuinely interested in what they're saying versus waiting for them to finish so you can just talk about you. That's the key to true salesmanship now. And we've lost that and in, in this pandemic has kind of slowed us down to kind of look at that. And this is a perfect time to kind of get introspective and to pay attention to how much you put weight onto your product and brand. And now it really is just you. That's all you have. Everybody's in the same boat. So this is a perfect time to really dive into that. And it's hard for people who are used to uh, it being a certain way. It's, it's a transition. It's, and knowing that you're so used to comfort and you don't like change by nature, we kind of hold on to our habits. Um, and it's a good time to start breaking those habits and really start trying to listen and take time to pause in your own thoughts. And that's what it's all about. So um, I think this industry is starting to see it. The biggest thing is leaders, especially executive leadership, to realize they don't have to have the answer. It's a great time to ask your frontline employees. Sometimes you'll get the best ideas from the people who know the least about the business. So take advantage of that. I mean, what are some ideas we can do to improve how we operate as a, as a team? I want you to tell me, not here, guys, this is what we're going to do to make it easier for you. Because by nature, if somebody's going to say, that doesn't make it easy for me, that makes it easy for you. So you already have defiance right off the bat. So, uh, so it's good to start asking questions versus telling. And I think the nature of our industry is starting to shift in that direction by force, if you will. Well, I love how you said you've got to take a genuine interest in other people. I think that's one of the biggest hurdles most people are so worried about worried about what are they going to say next? How are they going to respond? How are they going to look in the situation? And I think if they can just take them eyes off, their eyes off themselves and focus on other people and adding value to other people, relationships then start to be built. And then like you said, then you can take the time to listen and get ideas from people that are on the front lines, people that... and. What a great opportunity in this pandemic, and I'm not minimizing the pandemic. There's a lot of people that are still suffering out there, but it's a great opportunity for businesses to kind of reevaluate what's working in their business, what's not working, how do they invest in their people? What are some of the ways that these uh, lending executives can invest in their people? You had mentioned, you know, you first got to start and invest in yourself, and then how do you invest in your teams? Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, and I might offend some leaders who might be listening to this, but this is a true, this is a nugget. This is a true, if people hear this and really apply this, they would be the catalyst to changing their business. And this is where I've been speaking to leaders about this. We have to understand that most of our employees, I say over 70% of the nature of our employees are creative people. We're creative by nature. 70% of our population is deemed creative, right brain thinkers. Those are people that have dreams. They have ideas. They're expressive. They want to be recognized for that expressiveness. That's why we love entertainment. Um, secondly, there's about a 30% that are analytical. Those are the underwriters, if you will, people that are comfortable not being very social, who are really comfortable, just give me a job, let me do it. But you have 70% of your people who have other ideas. 
we as leaders think our employees are really committed to our business mission, and they're not. We have to be honest with ourselves. People are committed to survival. If you can talk to your employees and find out what is it that really they're passionate about, what is it that they want to be? They might want to be a veterinarian. They might want to be a, in politics. They might want to be a, a, uh, a chiropractor or a doctor, or they might just want to open a flower shop one day, open their own business. Then if we can spend time helping them get that in their pocket, then they'll be better at their job on a daily basis. But what we do is we assume that they are really engrossed in our business and they're going to be excited that we're doing well in our business, but it's not their business. It's your business. And they see it as I'm working. So give them something, a light at the end of the tunnel, help them get closer to that goal each day, each month, each year, help them figure out ways to do that. And that means maybe in your conversation, it's not about our products. It's like, Hey, so tell me what's going on with your, with your schooling right now. How's, how's school going? And just, you know, let's forget about, metrics today. I just love the fact that you were able to get that class done. Um, you know, go ahead and sign up for the next one. I'd love to hear what, what you're learning. Share with me. Help me get, you know, learn what you're learning and talk about that. They'll walk away and be the best employee you ever had because they're excited about their trajectory. They're excited about where they're going. And that's the secret now because everybody's starting to figure out what do I want to be when I grow up? What do I want to do? I don't want to do this all my life. I don't want to be yelled at by a customer. I didn't graduate high school or graduate sixth grade going one day I want to be a processor and have a hundred loans in my pipeline and be yelled at by people I can't even see. That's not a dream. <laughs> so we have to understand that we're now focused on the subconscious desires of people. So learning how to talk to that and be in that space and allowing people to speak to those things is what's going to excite them and get them motivated to move to the next level. And that becomes your brand. And that alone will shift your business. So let's talk about that a little bit, because I know the skeptics out there, the executives out there are going to say, well, I have a company to run. And why would I help my people prepare themselves to leave my company one day? How do you respond to those critics who, who don't see beyond, hey, I just got to get the numbers in. I just got to get people working. Talk to me a little bit about that, because I think it's critical that these executives understand that before they're ever willing to take one step further? Good question. Now, everyone is looking for the same thing. Human nature is to look for comfort, look for things that are easy. So I already tell people right now, all the, most of your employees are looking at other jobs already. So, you know, we're going to have them disgruntled looking for other jobs. They're being inundated by recruiters continuously, you know, giving, offering the better greener grass. So you're going to have your, your employees aren't going to leave anyway. They're looking to leave. They're either they're going to settle and be unhappy and accept their fate of habits of being never getting to where they want to be, which means they're going to be kind of living to the line. Most, if you have a, a K performer, if you have a, a line of performance, you're going to see people go, where is the line that I am performing? And they live right above that line. They don't want to accept. They're not trying to exceed that line. They're trying to just live above the line. That's like opportunity. Because of that, you have a status quo employee. But if you have an employee going, you know, in the next five years, if I stick with this company, I will be able to have my own business or I'll have uh, a backing, I'll have the schooling and a degree I need to get to dot, dot, dot. And my boss is helping me get that. Those five years are going to be the most impactful and beneficial for your business. And they'll be the best recruiter for your business as well. If you have somebody who's not thinking that way, they're just employees. They're not trying to recruit people for you. They're not bringing a brand to you. And they're already looking to leave anyway. You don't know it because they'll never tell you. But most people are looking, hey, is there a better opportunity somewhere? Because they're feeling like they're stuck in a job. 
So understanding the psyche of human nature, the psychology, is the best way to manage people. And it's not about your business. It's about understanding people. I love how you say that about it's about understanding people. And I think you're dead on when you talk about if you can really invest in people and their dreams and help them accomplish their things, they're going to be raving fans of yours. They're going to be huge advocates. And more importantly, whether it's two years, five years, eight years, if you're helping them during that time, you're going to get their best each and every day versus when they're shopping for another job, when they're looking, when they're kind of bored, and the term you used was kind of just a status quo employee. So right. what are some well, of the things, we, go ahead. No, I, I was gonna say one of the things that I see is like we tell people I need you to do better at this, I need you to work on this. Well, in the world of human nature, we look at our leaders, our bosses, like parents in our subconscious. Our subconscious sees authority as parental figures or teachers. So when we tell people we need you to do something, automatically we invoke fear in that person and fear of survival, fear of being fired, fear of uh, being written up, fear of not getting a bonus. All those fears make people shut down to survival mechanisms. They just do what they have to to survive. They're not trying to thrive. They're trying to survive. That's why I, I say even performance evaluations are, are fading because what we do is we don't pay attention to the strengths we mention them, but then we focus on the, on the weaknesses and say, you need to work on this to be an employee here. Instead of saying, hey, I notice these strengths about you. What would you like to see more of you? What would you like to work on? What would you like to see? And get them to focus on those things. Instead of telling people they need to work on something, what would you say to your kid? You would say to your kid, look, I know you have, you have the ability to do this. I know you can do this. What can we do to help us see that into fruition. That's the key key phrases. And I say that because I'm an NLP practitioner. So I work on the word choices we use as leaders that changes the feelings and the emotions and energy and get people to produce in a better way. So, and people don't really understand NLP, but I'll tell anybody, if you watch a comedian and you actually go see a comedy act and you laugh, that's NLP. You listen to stories, you listen to word choices, you listen to tone and you listen to pausing and timing. And that creates a feeling. And so learning how to talk to people, learning what words to use is the way to invoke the right energy and the, and the personality that you want to get from your employees. Great information. So as we're talking through this, help me with, you know, for executives that say, you know what, I do want to do a better job of engaging with my employees. I want to find out a little bit more about their dreams, their ambitions, how did they go about doing that, especially in this new normal, this pandemic world where a lot of uh, companies are still working remotely, where there's far less face time? What are some of the recommendations you would give to our listeners to how can they engage? What tools are out there? What can they do uh, in this environment of a remote workforce? That's a great question. I have a, I have a little booklet. They were want to get it. They can go to my website and I can send it to them. It's a booklet on how to, what questions you can ask, what words you can use and ways you can engage virtually. But the biggest thing is first be genuine first, be yourself. You know, like you said it already, it's like, instead of being the know-it-all and have all the skills and all the, and have it all together, talk about what you want it to be. If you might own a mortgage company, but 
you might have always wanted to be a soccer coach. You know, I've always wanted to be a soccer coach. And I still to this day wish I could have been a soccer coach. You know, I never even thought about finance until I had to take care of my family and I got into this business. Share that stuff, you know, because once you are able to share who you are, it opens the door for people to actually be uh, genuine and share who they are. But they have to see it in you first. You have to emulate what you expect from others. Um, And so, and another good point I'll say is really important is don't promote your success in in virtue of closing loans how many how much volume you've done focus on the efforts of the work of the people that support the volume because that is your artery to your success your salespeople are feeling their their worth by their income for the most part they still need validation but don't negate the the power of the artery of your front of your your staff the internal staff the produce the loas the processors the closers all those people that are getting all the calls from the customers and the LOs who are really demanding answers and quick, you know, dealing with the quick things that have to be done, recognize the efforts and the timing that they've put into that. And because you can't just do one without the other, because as soon as you recognize one, you've, and not the other, you've negated half your staff. So make sure you involve everyone. Well, and I like how you talked about, you know, you've got to tell your story And I think part of that is, and a lot of executives struggle with that, is they think they always have to have all of the answers. They've got to be this type A personality who's hard charging every second of the day, and they don't want to show any vulnerability. Mm -hmm. How can executives get past that and be willing to share their stories and show vulnerabilities and share past experiences that showed where they had failed at something or they had a struggle? Because I think when they do that and it's genuine and authentic, they get much greater buy-in, but a lot of times they have great apprehension to ever going there. Yeah, and I, I 100% agree with you on that. And that goes back to posturing and our, you know, childhood emotions from school. You know, if we were the popular kid in school, then we tend to be the most popular kid in business as well. And that becomes our, our persona. So you got to understand your own persona. It could be the thing that's protecting you from being genuine. So the first step is to start, you know, hey, um, can I tell you guys, I grew up, you know, grew up, how I grew up is a, is the best way to start. I grew up this way. Some people feel privileged. I think Raquel did a great story just recently. She grew up privileged, she said, and she gave a great story about how that really is a paradigm from the way she sees things. And so even if you grew up privileged, if you went to college and you had a great family, then talk about that and how you felt disconnected with others who didn't, you know, that might be a great story. So just, it, you have to force yourself to open up. And sometimes, you know, you can't even ask people, do you have any questions? You have to literally just be willing to give what you call a testimony, if you will, of your upbringing. And it takes a re- introflection of you. You know, um, that's really hard for some people. That's where coaching comes in. And I actually, I just got a phone before I called you with somebody who I'm helping her develop her story. Um, and I'll just give you a quick thing I told her, which was you have to describe the emotion that you felt at the time. Describing the emotion you felt is where people resonate with you because everybody feels the same emotion. If you're in Thailand to, to, to California, Fear is fear, joy is joy. Everybody feels emotion and they can all relate to that. So describe the emotions you feel at the time of those experiences is the key to to really make people feel connected to you. Excellent tip. And I think, you know, when you want people to connect, when you want to break down those barriers, people have to realize that you're sharing your story. So people don't have to agree with you, but it's your story. So they're not going to critique it it's your story. This is your experience. This is what has happened to you. And like you said, when you can share those emotions that were taking place and the struggles, 
I think that's where you become much more relatable and, and you have a much better chance of connecting with those individuals. Julian, we've covered a, a ton of great topics. I know my listeners are gonna go back and take some notes and everything. Where do you see kind of the mortgage industry going forward? And as we talk about the pandemic and you know more states opening up and businesses trying to get back to some form of a new normal, where, where's the industry heading and what are some of the tips you would give the industry as we try to pull out of this pandemic? Well, you know, it's funny. I About a year and a half ago, I predicted that the industry is going to have a major shift and it's going to be forced. I didn't say it was a pandemic, but I said it's going to be forced to be more virtual and to be more adaptive to human nature uh, because people will break. And we don't recruit people like, say, financial does. You know, I, we don't go out and discuss this. A lot of people fall into this business because they need a job. And so I think the industry is going to get more intentional about recruiting and finding the value of being in this industry, I think that's one thing we're going to do. And we have to do that. We need to make sure people see the value of this business. It's not a job. It's a career choice. And it is a a solid, positive place to be. Um, I think what we're going to see more of is, like you said, leaders becoming more adaptive to the nature of the employee and finding best practices and work more like a millennial company. You know, you can find some best practices with online companies instead of trying to reinvent we're going to have to kind of take status quo from those companies and offer things that they're offering, you know, from dog parks in the office to, you know, um, you know, ditch days. You know, I think we're going to start putting some limits on how many files a processor should have, regardless of flow. I think mortgage industry should look at, you know, um, you know, there should be a, a, a max, you know, after this, we start losing quality. So let's start pushing those to maybe a third party or, you know, start contracting. But we have to start doing that because we need to keep the lifestyle and the and the, the culture in, in check. So I think that's going to be a big part of it because we want to make sure that we are focused more on mental health just as much as, uh, I would say, production. Fantastic insights, Julian. Thank you so much for being on this episode. You are welcome back anytime. You shared so many incredible insights and backgrounds that I think hopefully people and our listeners will be able to take those experiences and be able to open up and start having those genuine conversations and start leading. If somebody wanted to find out more about you, if they wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to get a hold of you? Uh, they can email me at jsado, that's S-A-D-O, at pivot, the number two, the word change.com. Or they can just type in juliansado.com uh, and they'll find me very easily. Um, they can call me at 214-945-9700. Julian, thank you so much for being on this episode of FinTech Hunting. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for the time. Appreciate you having me. FinTech Hunting is brought to you by Next Level Advisors. Next Level Advisors, where businesses come to grow.